Welcome to East Asia Now, a podcast that brings you informed perspectives on current issues related to East Asia. Hello, listeners, and welcome to East Asia Now. My name is David Fields, and I'm the Associate Director of the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I am joined today by Brian Dodd, Associate Professor of History and Asian Studies at Whitman College. Brian earned his BA in International Relations and French at the University of Minnesota, his MA in Asian Studies at the University of Michigan, and his PhD in History at the University of Pittsburgh. His main research area is the cultural history of late Imperial China, 1500 to 1900. He is the author of Identity Reflections, Pilgrimages to Mount Tai in Late Imperial China, published by Harvard University Press in 2004, and The Chili Pepper in China, a Cultural Biography, published by Columbia University Press in 2020, which is what we are going to be discussing today. And as I just learned, Brian is actually a Madison native. So Brian, welcome back to Madison. Thank you. Great to be here. So we like to start these interviews by uh, asking our guests why history or why their discipline, why China, and in your case, why chili pepper? So why did you become a historian who focuses on China, and then how did you get to the very interesting topic of chili peppers? Sure. Um, So how I ended up studying China actually has a good University of Wisconsin connection. Um, So as an undergraduate, I did take a couple courses that touched on China, including one of those distribution courses, which is a good good plug for them, uh, an art history class that really intrigued me. Um, As an undergraduate, I didn't really take a focus on China. Um, My international relations major really focused on Western Europe. Um, I did a year studying abroad in France, not in China. Um, but those couple courses that I took piqued my interest. And then the University of Wisconsin connection is my father taught for years at, in the geology department. And so as China was opening up in the late 70s, early 1980s, um, that's when you get sort of the first batch of Chinese scholars coming over to the U.S. to study And my father had several scholars from China working with him, studying with him. And so typical of my parents, they invited them over to our house for Thanksgiving dinner, for Christmas dinner. And so part of that time I was in high school, part of the time I was in college, and I just had that opportunity to interact with them that furthered mostly subconsciously at that point, my interest in China. And so after graduating from uh, undergraduate, I knew I wanted to go on and I knew I didn't want to keep studying Western Europe and China had grabbed my attention in those various ways. And so I started, I wasn't yet sure if it was going to be history or some other field. So I started with an interdisciplinary Chinese studies program at Michigan and very quickly was drawn into, within my first semester there, it was like, oh, yeah, history is what I want to 
keep going on. So I ended up doing a PhD in Chinese history. Chili pepper, it basically, I was in Beijing eating at a Sichuan restaurant and knowing that chili pepper was native to the Americas, I started wondering, well, how did the Chinese start eating chili peppers? This is a pretty intense flavor to suddenly add in. Um, cuisine, I mean, until you get to the 20th and 21st centuries, cuisine is usually a fairly conservative part of most cultures. And so it's a pretty significant shift. And so that's what got me, that was the sort of initial question I was asking and that got me into a very long <laughs> study of, of the chili pepper in China. Okay, and, and was your face all red and were you sweating because <laughs> you, you had this red Yeah, red? a bit, yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I, I love that origin story because I feel like it speaks to the power of personal connections, you know, and people-to-people exchange mm-hmm. and how that can have ripple effects beyond what the purpose of that particular exchange is. Right, you know? absolutely. And it's, yeah, it's yeah. kind of sad to be living in the times we are now where it's getting more and more difficult. Thankfully, um, actually, our number of Chinese international students at the University of Wisconsin is growing over the past great. few years, which, yeah, which yeah. is great, but I know that that's really not necessarily the case, and these kinds of exchanges are getting harder to arrange. But, mm-hmm. but we're, we're, we're lucky that we're still reaping the benefits of so much pioneering work done you know, by the, the generation before us. Absolutely. In this regard. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I have a question about how did chili peppers first get to China? I, I know I was kind of surprised by your work and surely thinking that chili peppers were native to China as well. And, and in, I studied Korea. In Korea, I mean, it's hard to imagine any sort of Korean cuisine without kimchi and right. without chili peppers. And, and yeah, I know yeah. there are many types of regional cuisines in China are the same. So how did it first get there? Sure. And I mean, of course, you know, you, there is now a term to describe the kimchi before the chili pepper is white kimchi, <laughs> but of course it's it's yeah it's a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it turns out to you know I was hoping okay I can get all this information and track the chili pepper moving across the Pacific or up through Southeast Asia, and then when it arrives in China, I can trace it moving up the river valleys and but no. <laughs> Unfortunately, the records aren't that detailed, and in particular, it was impossible to trace exactly the route from the Americas to China. One of the things, you know, if you look at like Europeans, uh, European history of the movement of spices from Southeast Asia to Europe. You can get pretty detailed because there's a, these ship manifests from the early modern period. You know, you can know exactly how many crates of black peppercorns and cinnamon and other things were on an individual ship. Um, chili pepper turns out not to have been an international trade commodity until we get into the 20th century. And so there's no way to trace it that minutely. Um, so, I mean, there are other scholars also who come to the same conclusion that I did, which is that most likely the chili pepper was spreading via ship 
but not because it was in the cargo hold, but because it was in the galley, the kitchen on, on board. And, and the people who were working on the ship brought it with them to eat on the voyage. And then perhaps intentionally, perhaps accidentally planning it at various ports of call. So it probably arrived in China somewhat accidentally. Okay. But, you know, the last leg of the trip may have been a little more intentional, but not necessarily. So you can sort of trace it coming into the Indian Ocean. It arrives, the Portuguese bring it in to Goa in India. And then from there it spreads throughout India. Uh, one of the early names in, in at least one of the languages in India for the chili pepper is Goan pepper. Um, and then it gets to Malacca and modern-day Indonesia a little bit later. And then probably it's getting to the Philippines from that direction, but, it might, but it's probably also arriving via the Spanish crossing the Pacific. So the Spanish are going to start moving goods across primarily from Acapulco but other, other ports in, in Mexico to Manila in, in what become known as the so-called Manila galleons. Um, but again, not crates of them, <laughs> but almost certainly in the, uh, for the cuisine, for the, for the workers, the sailors on, on the ships. Okay, and, and again, we see the importance <laughs> of these people-to-people connections, that maybe some, right. some of the most influential products were not entering through this uh, commodity market by, by people presumably mixing with each other and, hey, what's, what's that you're eating? Or, right, you know. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think so. And it's like, oh, can I have some seeds? Yeah, yeah. I'd like to grow those things. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure anyone's experience eating a chili pepper for the first time when they had never eaten one before would be the kind of thing that you would remember. Right, yes. <laughs> they might not immediately want the seeds, yes, yes. but it might be a little bit later. Maybe turn <laughs> off, maybe be turned off by, but right, then you yeah. would definitely remember it. Uh, so, so your work details how the chili peppers made it to China you know, fairly early on. Um, but then you also argue that it didn't really become a heavily traded commodity until the 20th century. So it seems like it, it, it had kind of a long path to catching on. Can you just outline sure. that or, or explain um, why this long delay? I think it, I mean, it, it catches on, but it's not catching on as a, a trans-regional trade commodity. Okay. So basically, one of the things that I think is really important for the spread of the chili pepper worldwide is that it, it can tolerate a wide range of climates. And so it's easy to grow. You can grow it in a tropical, subtropical, but also in, you can grow them in Wisconsin. <laughs> um, you may not get them as spicy as you would somewhere else, but you can grow them here. Um, and so it's a wide range of areas you can grow them in, and that helps them become popular because you can then grow them yourself. And so I think what's happening is people are growing them themselves in their kitchen garden, their vegetable garden, and then just eating them. Um, and it becomes cheaper, you know, you, obviously you're inputting labor. Yeah. <laughs> Besides that labor input, they're free as opposed to like black pepper 
is imported into China until we get in really the 20th century. And so that, by definition, makes it more expensive. Um, but even something like the native uh, Sichuan pepper, which is a completely different plant family yes. from the chili pepper, that's still something people had to buy. Most people couldn't grow them. It's a small tree, so you don't want to sacrifice that much space in your small garden plot. And so most people would still be buying that flavoring. And so the chili pepper is going to be cheaper, okay. cheaper than that. So I think it, it takes off, but it's at a local level, and it's at typically lower classes are adopting it earlier than the elite. The elite have a lot more reluctance yes. for a whole lot of reasons. Um, and certainly over time, one of the reasons they're not going to adopt it is because it's something those lower class people eat. Okay. <laughs> and so that becomes another barrier for the elite adopting it. Okay. But there is also a particularly, um, it's a, a Confucian bias against very strong flavoring that you can also find in Buddhism and Taoism. They're, they're for, you know, Somewhat similar, but a little bit different reasons. Yeah. Um, and part of the idea of, so for Confucian educated people, the uh, sort of rituals or offerings that you're supposed to make, uh, for example, to ancestors, you usually are doing some sort of fasting okay. prior to doing that. And typically that means avoiding meat and strong flavored vegetables. Okay. And most of the texts, of course, long predate the arrival of the chili pepper and don't include it, but they include things like ginger, garlic, onions. And if you're excluding those, obviously you're also gonna be excluding the chili pepper. Sure. So yeah, so there's some elite reluctance and that of course also means a bias in the historical sources, since obviously they're all written by the elite. Sure. So, so, so in, in a way, you could understand it as, for a while, a maybe lowbrow versus highbrow. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Okay. Well, that is yeah. very interesting. Um, well, obviously, it gets to the point where it's, it's rather ubiquitous, and, and you document that it's not just a culinary phenomenon, but that the chili pepper has a major impact on Chinese culture by you know, the, the late 19th, 20th century. Can you give us a few examples of, of the chili pepper's impact? Sure. So, um, you know, obviously its biggest use, of course, is as a flavoring in cuisine. It also gets adopted into traditional Chinese medicine. Um, and it's used less perhaps now than it might have been in earlier periods as in very specific sorts of remedies, but it still plays a huge role in the sort of rationale for why people in Sichuan, uh, Hunan, Guizhou, Yunnan area eat a lot of chilies. Um, and that is within the traditional Chinese medicine system, those are really humid areas. And one of the, you know, a myriad of health issues can arise if the body has too much moisture in it. And so 
living in those really humid climates. And this is often, you know, you notice it a lot in the summertime, but it's also true in the wintertime in those regions. And, and sometimes more important to expel that moisture through something you're eating since you're not sweating as much. Um, and so chili pepper, you know, anyone who's eaten them really intensely and sweating and tearing and everything can see how they can be a good mechanism for expelling excess moisture. Yeah. Um, and that becomes, you know, a lot of people who live in those regions of Sichuan, Hunan, and neighboring areas really feel that in order to be healthy, you need to be eating the chili peppers in order to help the body regulate that okay. aspect. So that becomes an important sort of, you know, it, it's within that tradition of medicine, but they're just eating it as a flavor in the food. They're not taking it intentionally as medicine. And then other aspects we can see, for example, the, the Chinese word for spicy is la. And that initially was used for, for things like ginger and garlic, Sichuan pepper, um, and not, you know, obviously originally wasn't the chili pepper because that doesn't arrive in China until the late 1500s. Um, but the use of that term today in China pretty much always means the flavor of a chili pepper. Not always, but, but generally speaking, if somebody says, um, you know, la or la, which means I can't eat spicy. I'm, the second one literally means I'm afraid of spiciness, which means they can't eat spicy food. Almost always they mean they can't eat chili peppers. Um, and so this, the meaning of that character has changed because of that influence of the, and, the, and the presence of, of the chili pepper in China. Um, there's also some interesting gendered aspects of the culture that get connected with the chili pepper. The probably more ubiquitous, ubiquitous one is for women f who are from, especially from Hunan, but it also gets associated with women from, from Sichuan, is because they've eaten chili peppers since they were very young, it's seen as that eating of a chili peppers is seen as influencing their character. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're often called la meizu, which means spicy girls or spicy young women. Um, and there's that association. Obviously, it's, it's very stereotyped. Um, and of course, there's a broad range of characters of, of women living in those areas. But it, it's... It's seen as a trait, and, it, and one of the important things, I think, is just to see how that idea of sort of, you know, you are what you eat yeah. is, is coming through in, the, in that context. There is also a, a sort of male-gendered stereotype associated with chili peppers, and it's largely... Today, it's largely associated with Chairman Mao. Okay. Um, so he's from Hunan, absolutely loved to eat spicy food. There's a number of interesting stories about him. Um, apparently, at some point, one of his doctors felt like eating too much spicy food was having a, 
negative impact on his health. And okay. He's very adamant that he's going to keep eating chili peppers, and he's, he comes up with lines like, if you're afraid of the chilies in your bowl, how are you going to be able to be actually revolutionary <laughs> on the battlefield? And so that ability to eat very spicy foods becomes associated with Mao, but also becomes associated with sort of virility, masculinity, the ability to be a revolu- successful revolutionary. Yeah. Um, and so it still has a bit of that. It's not that sort of stereotyped, gendered um, sort of cultural symbolism isn't as deeply ingrained as the one is for, for women, but it's definitely still there. Well, Brian, thank you for sharing this with us today. It's really a, a remarkable tale of, of, you know, a food item going from really something incredibly foreign to re- the pinnacle of the Chinese culinary and cultural experience in just a few hundred years. And, and we've just scratched the surface here of what's covered in your book, The Chili Pepper in China, a cultural biography published by Columbia University Press. Please, if you're interested in this topic more, go out, buy a copy of that book, and get the full story. Before we let you go, though, Brian, we always like to ask our guests, what are you working on next? What's the next project? So the next project is is coming a little bit. I mean, it's indirectly out of this project, and that is I want to look at... Um, so China, there's a lot of plants that are seen to have um, a, a sort of more spiritual ability, particularly either to prevent spirit possession or to help expel uh, a spirit. And so I'm, I'm interested in looking at sort of a parallel of what are the plants that are seen to do that and how were those plants also used medicinally? Okay. And, and sort of looking at potential interplay between those two aspects of sort of a medicinal and religious use of, of, a, of a same sort of plant. Well, that sounds fascinating. We look forward to having you back. <laughs> okay, when, when yeah. When that book comes out and we can you. discuss <laughs> something, something else in the realm of uh, herbology. Yes, sounds good. All right, well, thank you very much for joining us today, Brian. All right, thank you. East Asia Now is produced by the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This podcast is made possible by a Title VI grant to support international education from the U.S. Department of Education. For more information, please visit eastasia.wisc.edu. Our music is a traditional Korean sanjo performed by violinist Sohyun Park Altino.